0: This lecture is going to look at the evolution of outpatient care in the United States. And I've got an image from um, uh, The Hobbit, uh, which is subtitled There and Back Again. And the reason I have this is because the, the evolution of outpatient care it has been such that we started out with a system that was almost entirely outpatient-based, we went and shifted to a system that was heavily reliant on inpatient care and still is to a large degree where the hospital became the central hub of the system. But in the last 30 or so years, because of changes in reimbursement, we've seen a progression where care is moving more and more into the outpatient setting or being done in an outpatient status, even if it's being done in a hospital. So hence the there and back again, subtitle and just a little bit of fun. All right. So let's keep going. Let's get into this. So I showed you this slide before, uh, and I want to restate this. Most care early on was low tech and low value and done almost exclusively in the home. Right? Medicine prior to the industrial age frankly had very little value. We had we were relying on the theory of humors system which we've talked about where you know if you had a fever a doctor would come bleed you uh, or they might make you vomit or they might give you an enema and most of that stuff had no impact they were doing stuff to you, which had some social value maybe in making you feel like you're being cared for, but it didn't actually treat any of the conditions that they were supposedly trying to treat. So medicine before the industrial age and you know, up through the 1850s or so probably did more harm than good. And so most people stayed away from doctors if they could have could could avoid them. And they certainly stayed away from hospitals because hospitals were, again, based on the syst- uh, social systems, social institutions that were really designed for the poor and the indigent. So if you were in a hospital, it was most likely because you were poor and indigent. And so there's a very negative stereotype associated with that. And hosp- so hospitals really, and and it was true, right? This wasn't a, a stereotype without basis. Hospitals were really a dumping ground for the poor. Um, if you had a family that loved you and cared about you, they kept you at home and the doctor came to your home. <clears throat> now, I used the phrase hospital as doctor's workshop in the last lecture, and I want to kind of come back to that now and spend a little more time on it. So the there was a convergence of practice, because of the emergence of effective technology, so as technologies actually started to work in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as we discovered things like X-rays, and we had laboratories that, and we discovered, you know, bacteria and viruses, and we realized, oh, there's this whole whole microbial system out there, and you know, meat didn't rot uh, because of some sort of internal nature of meat that it was to rot but because microbial you know uh, microbes and and fly larvae and so forth so forth were getting on the meat and causing it to rot right so we didn't understand that until the late 19th century the late 1800s but as we started to kind of understand those things medicine actually started to work so um so then but but the, the medicine that worked became very expensive because it relied on equipment that single solo providers couldn't afford to have. So instead, the hospital became a technological hub for uh, doctors. So rather than a doctor owning his or her own equipment, x-ray, laboratory, so forth, or um having their own operating suite with trained nurses and trained anesthesiologists all of that moved into the hospital and so the hospital suddenly becomes a a focal point of healthcare where remarkable things that have never been done before are now being done and again because the equipment was too expensive for any one doc too expensive for any one doctor to afford the hospital became the natural point where the equipment was made available, and physicians used the equipment in the hospital. So, <clears throat> well, let me see. so hospitals bought the equipment, doctors used it to provide care, and and then hospital the hospitals collect payments separately from the doctors, which is still true, right? <clears throat> and so, a, a part of the reason why. Insurance emerges is because the cost of care, now that it works, now that we're uh, uh starts becoming more valuable, but it also becomes more expensive because we're using expensive technology. So, so we have to be able to compensate the hospitals for the acquisition of the equipment. And then, doctors needed trained nursing staff to, as well as other technicians, to operate the equipment and support the doctor in their activities. So again, the hospital becomes this nexus of medical technology. So this, this, this graphic is meant to show you the hospital at the center, right? So there's shared technology, shared nursing support and emergency uh, departments start to emerge uh, there as well. Um, And as a result, more care happens in hospitals and it is happening on an inpatient basis because the because the care actually worked and then the insurance allowed us to afford this very expensive care so we go from you know getting care where we might pay the doctor a couple of dollars to care that now costs you know, maybe more than a year's wages so we so we so now healthcare goes from something you can pay out of your normal earnings to something that is, if you have to get it, becomes a catastrophic loss. Remember what we talked about. True insurance is really designed to cover catastrophic losses. And so as the cost of care goes from something that you can pay for out of, you know, your normal earnings to something that you can't, you know, most people can't afford if they need it. Um, That's why insurance kind of co-emerges with this, with with care that actually works and technology. So, all of these things kind of come together simultaneously to see the emergence of the hospital. Now, the hospital sits at the center, and at the same time as technology starts to work, we see specialists emerging who uh, specialists sort of existed earlier on. They did some things with eyes um and and other other kind of primitive specialties but as we have technology again that actually allows us to start to to do surgery on the abdomen which was something you never could have done before before anesthesia only the crudest surgery was possible so as anesthesia allows more sophisticated surgery uh we see we see surgical specialties emerging and surgeons begin to rise in status uh, to be equal to the medical doctors uh, of the past. And so then doctors kind of universally surgeons, again, remember, were usually unskilled, well skilled, but not doctors. They were often barbers or, or butchers, you know. Um, uh, and so we see the specialists starting to emerge that can that really have special skills with particular kinds of equipment that is available in the hospital now the hospital still in order for a person a patient to enter the hospital and get care they have to be referred in by a doctor so they would be referred in by their primary care providers or the specialists and this primary care provider is really kind of in a way the center of 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 healthcare even though I've got them out here on the fringes, because uh, there's a lot of them, right? Um, but the primary care provider would, re- would refer people into the hospital to get care or refer the patient to a specialist who then might do a procedure in the hospital. Um, so- again, the main th- the main point here is medical technology requires large financial resources, and any one physician can't afford them. So that's why the physicians start sharing these resources at the hospital. And we have, again, medical care advances and gets more expensive and so co-evolves with insurance and insurance. And this co-evolution is sort of a back and forth, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But insurance, has an impact on how and and the ability to pay has an impact on how care evolves. So one of the things to think about here so we is a hospital is a lot like an album so I when I was a kid we had tapes and records, right? And when I was in high school, the CD came out. So that was super exciting because the, you know, records would wear out and they'd be all scratchy sounding and a CD always sounded perfect. And so it was so exciting to get CDs. And then it became easier to make copies of CDs and you could shuffle and all this great stuff that you all just take, take for granted um, with, with, you know, uh, your phones today. And I do too now. Um, But you'd, it used to be that you had to, um, if you wanted like one or two songs, you know, because because an album comes out, a new album comes out from a from your favorite recording artist, and a new album would come out, and it'd probably be maybe if you were lucky, two maybe three songs on this album with like twelve songs, you had to buy the whole album, right? Um, and so a hospital is a little bit like an album, right? So so it's got this collection of, of, of resources in there and you get it as a package. Um, so you have operating rooms and, and their associated equipment and staff that allows more complex surgery than had been possible before anesthesia in particular. But as we move into this age of understanding that bacteria exists and we, we start doing, you know, aseptic care, making sure that, that, our patients don't get infected, and then and then treating it with antiseptic uh, uh, care to you know make sure that anything that did get in we we kill, um, you know. So then we have nursing care for if we do a surgery, we have nursing care to care in a professional manner for post-operative care because these surgeries now are, are much more complex and the recovery times are much longer than they had been when you know surgeons were capable of doing very little. We have also nursing care for medical admissions. So rather than surgical admissions, we have medical admissions. So you have people who have had a stroke or heart attack, things like that, right? We have imaging technology at the hospital that now supplements uh, and uh, uh, the care that the providers can provide laboratory to get more advanced diagnostic supports. So we can determine what kind of of infection do you have, for example. And then, um, uh you know management of complex intravenous medication so as we get you know, now now i'm moving forward into the you know more current time right as we have medications that work that we can use to treat cancer for example you have to have you have to have pharmacists and nursing staff that know how to administer these complex medications that are often done intravenously, which means you're going to be injecting it. Um, uh, so so you need a trained staff that knows how to handle that sort of situation. So the doctor orders some sort of chemotherapy, for example, uh, for, for a cancer patient, and you need a trained staff to do that. And so the logical place to have that happen is in a hospital dialysis is for uh, treating kid kidney failure so if your kidneys stop working you know kidneys are basically basically clean your blood. Um, dialysis is a process where if your kidneys fail are, are are failing for whatever reason you go on dialysis and a dialysis machine does the work that the kidneys would have done These are big complex uh, processes that require trained technicians to operate these you know pieces of equipment safely. Um, I mean, they're literally drawing blood out of your body, cleaning it and putting it back in again that's a that's a pretty dangerous process if you don't know what you're doing. And then other specialized technology, but all of this is happening inside the hospital in a way that you know you're basically buying an album and I'm gonna and there's a reason why I'm using this this metaphor. <clears throat> but again, all of this is expensive, too expensive to have out in the outpatient setting and so doctors use the hospital as their workshop the hospital doesn't charge anything to the doctors the hospital relies on the doctor to refer the patient into the hospital and then and then the, the doctor follows the patient into the hospital or or has a specialist follow the doctor into the hospital where the care is rendered and then the doctor gets their professional fee and the hospital gets a gets a facility fee okay so, as we talked about previously, after um, 1965, when we initially have Medicare, um, the cost of Medicare is about 3.6 billion. Um, by uh, by 1982, it's 84.22 billion, and 67% of that is inpatient care. So, what what analysts are looking at? And seeing is, holy cow, you know, as as our policy people looking at, like holy cow, we've gone from three, you know, three point six billion to eighty four billion, which represents right. So we're looking here as a percent of GDP, and remember GDP is all the money earned in the country, right? So so Medicare uh, or excuse me, healthcare as a percent of GDP is going goes from five percent of GDP in nineteen sixty to in the early eighties, ten percent. Of GDP. And at this point, like I said, um, 67% of Medicare costs at that point are inpatient. So policymakers are looking really hard at the utilization of hospitals and they're trying to figure out how did how is it that we wound up having, you know, having so much inpatient care? And is there a way we can save on inpatient care? And just kind of, you know, notice here, huh, excuse me the percent of of uh, of gdp that we spend on healthcare continues to rise um from 1982 or so where it's hovering at around 10% it's now almost 20% it's like 18% um so we haven't actually solved anything yet but in 1982 we begin up we begin looking hard at what it is we can do to change the way that we finance our our medical system and so, Congress passes um, laws in 1982, uh, a law called TEFRA, um, and I've got it written out in the next chapter. And we'll talk. We'll continue to talk about this. This is a major event. So 1965 to 1982, in Chapter Six, in the or in the, uh, uh, ch- uh, the yeah the Chapter Six lecture, I talked about how hospitals were reimbursed historically on a cost plus basis so in the early days of medicare hospitals were reimbursed based on the cost of providing the care so they would document how much it cost them to provide care to a patient they would submit that to medicare and then medicare would reimburse them for the costs of the care plus a wedge for for profit that represented you know the administrative costs of of running the care of 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 running the hospital so cost plus So there was no incentive for hospitals to try to reduce the cost of providing care. And what do you get when you have no incentive to reduce the cost of providing care? You get much more expensive care, right? Which we saw. And so Congress is trying to, to figure out what can we do to fix that? And we move into the, in 1982, they pass a law which results in, the prospective payment system being applied to the inpatient side in 1983, uh, and this is applied to inpatient care. So, so prospective payment instead of getting cost plus, where the hospital just submits a claim saying, "Hey, it cost us a thousand dollars to take care of Mister Smith," um, and the and the and Medicare turning around saying, "Okay, okay, hospital, here's your thousand dollars." plus, say, 5%, which would be like $50 on top for your profit. So we'll give you a check for $1,050. So instead of doing that, what what Congress said was, we're going to identify the cost, or excuse me, the price that we will pay prior to the patient being admitted. And we're going to set those prices based on what we call diagnosis-related groups, or DRGs. So so Congress ordered the Center for Medicare and Medicaid to set up these prices that they would pay for a diagnosis-related group. So a physician, when you get admitted to a hospital, the physician comes up with a diagnosis saying, this is why the person is, is in the hospital. That results in a DRG, a code that then is assigned a dollar amount. What happens then is the hospital gets that fixed dollar amount, regardless of how much it actually costs to provide the care. So, if you're coming in with, you know, a DRG for, say, a stroke, um, if the DRG, the PPS value for the DRG is, say, $25,000, I'm just making up a number, then the hospital gets that $25,000 and no more. Um, and so the goal then for the hospital becomes – so the hospital knows as soon as the person is admitted, hey, we're going to get $25,000 for this patient. We have to keep the cost of that care below $25,000. So if And if we can, whatever we save, whatever we can provide the care for below twenty five, dollars that becomes our profit. So let's say the DRG says, hey, hospital, you're going to get $25,000 for this care. If the hospital is able to provide the care at a cost of, say – then the hospital gets to keep $3,000, 25 minus 22 is 20 is 3000, right? So that's what hospitals are now incentivized to do is they get, they know as soon as the doctor comes up with a DRG at admission, the hospital knows how much it's going to get paid. And so the incentive for the hospital now is to try to find ways to reduce the cost. So under cost plus, there was no incentive to reduce cost. In fact, there was really an incentive to generate more cost because more cost meant more profit because you're getting a percentage of a bigger number. Now you're getting a fixed amount of money. And the incentive is keep your costs below that amount of money. So reimbursement under the prospective payment system or PPS is fixed. Right. And, and so one of the fastest ways to reduce costs is to shorten inpatient stays, right? Because the longer a patient is in, in, in the bed, the fewer, fewer patient, other new patients you can bring in to get more DRGs, right? Plus every day that the patient is there costs you money. So, So immediately, as soon as as soon as PPS was passed, hospitals started shortening lengths of stay. What a surprise. Right. And they suddenly found they could do things faster and cheaper. Um, And also important to our story for this chapter is hospitals began to emphasize outpatient and ambulatory ambulatory services. So they started they started figuring out, hey, there are things we can do without actually admitting a patient. And so they started coming up with ways to do ambulatory surgery, which means you same, or another way to say same day surgery. So you come in, you have a procedure and then you go home. You don't get admitted uh, at all. And then they found out techniques to shorten stays and I'll show you one right now. So, so the incentive, the immediate incentive was to shorten, um, shorten, shorten stays so, one of the things that was invented was laparoscopic surgery, uh, uh, referred to as minimally invasive surgery. So, for example, my father-in-law had his gallbladder out a couple of years ago. Um, he's an older gentleman, and <clears throat> the gallbladder is a small organ, fails often. um, and it's a it's a relatively minor surgery, but in the past, but it's in your abdomen and in the past, in order to get the gallbladder out, the surgeon would have cut a big um, hole in your in your belly, right? A big inc- incision in your belly, open up your belly, and then re- reach in and cut the gallbladder out. Recovery from gallbladder surgery used to be a week. With the invention of, uh, under traditional surgery, where they, you know, because if we cut your belly open, we're exposing you to all sorts of potential infection, and then we're doing a lot of damage to your body. With um, minimally invasive surgery, with laparoscopic surgery, what we're able to do is just cut a couple of holes in your belly. and each of these each of these sticks, if you will, that the providers are using, um, are tools. plus there's a camera. Um, that the provider is is you know one of the providers is using to guide the surgery. So you can see you know we're cutting and and sewing um, without and, and we're we're having a couple of little holes right. In this case, it looks like four holes, right, as opposed to cutting the belly wide open. So today, gallbladder surgery. So gallbladder surgery historically was a week of recovery, uh, inpatient recovery. Follow. Excuse me. Inpatient a week inpatient stay followed by often like a week of recovery before you could start you know doing normal normal activity. Now, uh, gallbladder surgery is a same day procedure. You go in, you have your gallbladder out, and you're home by night. Now that doesn't mean you get to you know go run a marathon the next day, but the recovery is also a heck of a lot shorter because now instead of recovering from a huge incision in your Uh, belly, right, you are just recovering from having a few, uh, a few, um, uh, uh, you know, a few, a few small incisions. So uh, this resulted in a radical reduction in length of stay, uh, which is a huge saving to the, uh, to the hospital. And frankly, it's, it's better care, right? I mean, this is just better care and I just, I love to make this point that care follows the money, right? In this innovation probably would have come along eventually. Um, but it came along really, really fast once the way that hospitals were reimbursed changed. So coming back to the, to the hospital as album, um, example the outpatient revolution is a lot like the mp3 revolution right uh if you don't need inpatient surgery excuse me inpatient services do you really need a hospital and the answer is uh no right a lot of a lot of surgery today is done either in a physician's office or in what we call an ambulatory surgery center which is basically like an operating room a standalone operating room right it's outside the hospital um the techniques and technology have adjusted to become cheaper, better, and safer. And so, so like the way the MP3 just kind of blew up the music industry, um, uh, the the change in reimbursement caused a caused a reconsideration of what needed to be done in the hospital and what could be done in an outpatient setting. And so, as a result. Um, Much like when iTunes came out and you could suddenly just buy the two songs off of the album that you actually like, and you didn't have to buy the entire album. So you go from having to pay, you know, $17 for a, a CD to, you know two dollars you know to a dollar per song or a dollar 25 or whatever they finally wound up at you know a dollar 25 per song so you could sp- spend 250 for the two songs that you're actually going to you know the actually like and are actually going to listen to as opposed to 17 dollars for the uh whole album that's basically the story of the outpatient revolution right um the hospital was a very expensive <laughs> excuse me and continues to be a very expensive place to get Get care. Why? Because it has to have all these services in it. Um, with the uh, with the emergence of the outpatient revolution, much like the emergence of the MP3, the whole industry got really it got not quite blown up, but but really got deconstructed. And so, what we see now is this back to the outpatient movement. Where we are seeing ambulatory surgery centers, which by definition you're getting an out you're getting surgery in an outpatient setting. These are ambulatory surgery centers only do same day surgery. So you go in to the ambulatory surgery center for a procedure that you will then be sent home afterwards. We started to see the emergence of so that was a major revolution. So um, uh, a lot of ophthalmologists do their care in an ambulatory surgery center. Um, you know, they'll, you'll go in to get, uh, your, um, cataracts done or glaucoma treated. That's it. And you'll get it in an ambulatory surgery center. There's no reason to, to do it in a hospital. And what's the incentive? Well, physicians can own, they can't own hospitals, but they can own, uh, Um, ambulatory surgery centers. And so if a physician owns an ambulatory surgery center, the physician gets their professional fee, plus they get the facility fee uh, for providing the care. So you guys listen to the the podcast uh, with the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. That is an example of an ambulatory surgery center where they do same day outpatient surgeries. Um, We also saw, so, and part of this is the tech a piece of this is the technology started falling in cost, so that at the same time, so that doctors realized they could get higher reimbursement for themselves by doing it outpatient, an outpatient taking a inpatient procedure and doing it in the outpatient setting, and then they realized that they could afford the the technology for themselves and started building ambulatory surgery centers, in a similar way. Radiologists started saying, "Hey, I can. You know, the 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 cost of 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 imaging equipment is such that it's still crazy expensive, but affordable enough that I can get a loan and I can build my own standalone imaging center, and then I, as the radiologist, can can get all the money right. So I don't have to share the profit." uh, of the MRI with the hospital. I can own my own MRI as a radiologist. And when somebody comes, when somebody needs an MRI, I can have it done in my standalone imaging center. So this is an, so this is a, a clinical setting that is outside of the hospital where the MRI is just, that's, that's my business. I have x-ray machines and MRIs and tech, CTs and ultrasound and whatever else. And somebody comes and says, "Hey, I need a MRI. They can come to a standalone imaging center." um and the radiologist who owns it, or par- group radiology group that owns this imaging center now gets to bill for the for the MRI or the x-ray. Plus they get to bill for their professional component of reading the actual image. So that allows physicians to make more money. So the big incentives, right. For the physician to be like, Hey, I can, you know, this technology is affordable now, still incredibly expensive, right. But affordable enough that, that if a group of physicians get together, they can buy the equipment themselves and use it themselves. So we see, Ambulatory surgery centers emerging and pulling surgeries out of the hospital, even as the hospital itself says, starts saying, "Hey, we can do we can do outpatient surgery. You know, we'll just use the OR, the same OR that we would have done inpatient surgery for. We'll do an outpatient procedure there too, no problem." And then doctors start realizing, "Well, if we can do this on an outpatient basis, I don't need a ward, right? I don't need to do my surgery in a hospital so that the patient can then get get uh, admitted." if I don't need to admit my patient, then I can just do the surgery. So why not just build an ambulatory surgery center that I can own and make all the money, right? And so so surgeries start getting pulled. As as we start to move from inpatient to outpatient surgeries, we start to see doctors pulling their outpatient surgeries out of the hospital and into their own ambulatory surgery centers. Likewise, imaging, as as imaging um, technology becomes more affordable, you see radiology groups Creating standalone imaging centers that they can now capture the whole um, the whole uh, uh, profit. We also see commercial laboratories. So a lot of laboratories are um, like manufacturing operations. They can do high volume stuff, um, and in a lot of a lot of laboratory stuff is just high volume, kind of the same thing over and over and over again well when you have when you have a process where you're doing the same thing over and over and over again the more scale you can get so the more you can get big machines that do the same things as little machines right but they just do them um per unit they do them a lot cheaper so commercial laboratories started to emerge uh and compete with the hospital so it used to be your primary care doctor would be like oh go to the hospital laboratory get a um you know, get blood drawn and and the hospital lab will, will give me the results. Commercial laboratories start setting up outside of hospitals, like you probably heard of Quest Diagnostics, and there's some other ones out there. And they're outside of the hospital, run by a pathologist, or they have a pathologist who's, you know, providing medical oversight, um, but no longer in a hospital. And they can do it at scale, Um, and more cheaply. So insurance companies start having patients go to these commercial laboratories instead of to hospitals. Then you see um, real bread and butter stuff getting yanked out of the hospitals with urgent care centers. You know, it used to be urgent care centers are still pretty new under the sun, like, you know, maybe in the last 20 years or so. You know, if if your kid got sick You know, ran a high fever or was in pain from from a strep infection, and it was you know Saturday morning. Well, you probably weren't going to be able to get to see your pediatrician until Monday, maybe even Tuesday. You know, depending on access issues. So where would you go? You'd go to the ED, right? So the ED was, EDs are historically flooded with low acuity stuff, not life, limb, or eyesight, right? So most of the of the junk frankly that goes through the ed is the result of a lack of access not because it's life threatening urgent care centers emerge to take care of a lot of this lower level ash and trash as we as, as you know we sometimes call it in the industry right so urgent care centers emerge to meet this need of this lower acuity right less complex not life threatening conditions like my kid has got um uh, strep throat, and it's Saturday, and I can't get in to see my pediatrician until Monday. But my kid is in pain and has a high fever. All I need is a prescription for antibiotics. Well, where am I going to go? The ED. Oh man, now I've got a seven-hour wait in the ED, and so urgent cares, urgent care centers pop up, um, where they're like, hey, bring your, you know, bring your low-level acuity things to us. When it's after hours and you can't get in to see your pediatrician, or if you're an adult and can't get in to see your your primary care provider, uh, and we'll you know write the prescription for you, and then you can follow up with your regular provider, you know when their office hours are open. So urgent care centers em- emerge to address an access issue, but also you know just a quality issue. Like it sucks to sit in a in a with a crying baby in an ED for six or seven hours, right? And urgent care urgent care centers are the are the best things since sliced bread in my opinion and then we start to see home health emerge kind of to support uh, home health we've always had home health right so that's kind of the original you know the original form of care was to to get care in the home what we now see is the level of sophistication that can be done in the home has just grown and grown and grown as technology becomes cheaper and more mobile so as as Technology advances and becomes smaller and more mobile. We can do more in the home, right? So now the technology doesn't have to reside in the hospital. We can bring it to the house. An awful lot can now be done. We talked about technology uh, in uh, the chapter five lecture. So things like wearables, right, are are just a you know one more example of you know the level of of um, technological advances that are smaller and more effective. So home health emerges and, and, a, and really grows a lot as we start to have more ambulatory care. So someone goes in and gets uh, my, my, uh, a family member of mine just got a, a, a knee replacement in a, in an, in a, in a same day, uh, 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 sorry, as a same day procedure, he went in in the morning, had his knee replaced and he was out by evening. Now, if he'd been, he's not. He's got a a supportive family around him, so he doesn't really need home health, but if it was something more complicated, we could have had a um, home health nurse coming in to check on him, could have had uh, physical therapy is done through home health, all kinds of stuff, and a lot of this is home health grows in importance as the acuity of of care that's being done in an ambulatory setting increases, so instead of admitting you to the hospital to get your rehabilitation, we we send you home, and then we send in home health aides to you know home health workers of different levels of uh, of training to continue that care that's now being done in the home instead of historically been done in the hospital. The result then is all of the lower level stuff is, is, is progressively being pulled out of the hospital. So what's left is only the most intense stuff. If you're having inpatient surgery today, that level of surgery is very, is going to be much more complex. Gallbladder, right? Used to be an inpatient surgery. Now it's not. So what's left are, you know, uh, major surgeries that are addressing the heart, for example, life life and death stuff where you have to be in the hospital where there is care that's going to be immediately available if something goes wrong. Um, historically, so we've got this thing called cost shifting, right? So hospitals' big profit centers are pharmacy, lab, and x-ray we call it PLX, pharmacy lab and x-ray, right? Those are their big profit centers plus their ORs, right? So as we see and what we've historically done is there are some things that don't make any money like OB um, uh, obstetrics. So delivering babies, hospitals lose money on, on mother baby units, right? So how do they, how do, how do they keep them? Well, uh, mother baby units are basically like loss leaders, right? So it's like, like a Walmart might sell low cost televisions in order to get you in the door. And then they sell you a bunch of socks and, you know, cheap food and stuff where they actually make all their profit. Um, hospitals provide some care at a loss in order to get you in the door and using other things. And so what they're able to do is what we call cost shifting. So, they have these high cost things like maternity care that they, but they make up for that maternity care law losses in maternity care by having other surgical interventions or, or again, pharmacy lab and x-ray. So, and what happens now is as all this stuff gets stripped out, um, the ability to cost shift decreases. So it used to be that hospitals could, you know, make money on, on some things and they would lose money on other things. And they could keep the whole thing kind of going as a package, as long as it was like an album. But once you, once the medical industry moved to more of an MP3 style, where you get to just, you know, a la carte it, pick what you want and leave the rest, it becomes a lot harder to, for the industry to, to cost shift. And so hospitals after 1980. Uh, After the 1983 reforms, the PPS reforms, a lot of hospitals started to fail. So, deconstructing the hospital. So the first image I showed you, I had the hospital at the center as a much bigger bubble. Now, a lot of things are being stripped out. So we're seeing urgent care centers are stripping out some of the um, low-cost, low-acuity stuff out of the Out of their emergency departments, we're seeing ambulatory surgery centers pulling out a lot of the lower acuity uh, surgery, uh, surgical uh, uh, surgical interventions. We're seeing dialysis, independent dialysis um, centers instead of having it dialysis done in the hospital. We have dialysis outpatient dialysis centers. We see imaging centers emerging that are standalone. So the MRI, so you can get an MRI at a hospital, or you can get MRI at an imaging center. And I will tell you, getting an MRI at an imaging center is a lot cheaper, and the quality is the same. And then we're even starting to see standalone EDs, which are all affiliate ED emergency departments. Um, so if you live in, if you're a UNH student, and you drive up uh, 108 towards Dover, so if you're going from UNH to Dover, um, you'll see uh, a Portsmouth Regional Hospital uh, standalone ED right there next to the Dunkin' Donuts uh, on 108 as you're heading towards 16. Um, now that's an, an it's affiliated with a uh, with Portsmouth Regional, so uh, you go there, you get your emergency care, and if it's something that they can't handle in the ED, they'll evacuate you to to the hospital itself or to a higher level of care. But the point here is a lot of the really profitable stuff that used to be done in the hospital that kind of kept the hospital afloat is now being pulled out. And the hospital is left with these very high acuity, very sick, right, patients. And they no longer have a lot of the kind of low acuity, profitable stuff that they used to have to offset the costs of providing The care to really sick patients. And so the this is kind of like the death spiral that I talked about in chapter six. Hospitals now have to raise their average prices because they don't have a way to cost shift um, to the, you know, and and charge the lower acute, you know, get profits off these lower acuity services. And as a result, the overall cost of 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 hospital care is rising. So that's this is what I what I when I talk about the the like you know the, the idea of the album versus the MP3, right? Well, you used to have to buy the whole album, right? The whole, you had to buy you, you got all your services at the hospital because the technology was too expensive, it was too bulky, it was too big. Um, and so everybody all the technology went to the hospital. Now it has it has gone back out into the community in different forms, um, but in an outpatient setting. So this is the there and back again story that I started with. Um, so we started with everything was done in the outpatient, you know, outpatient, meaning primarily in the home. As technology started to work, it was expensive and it was bulky and it had to be, and and so it made sense to centralize it all in the hospital. And then, and that the hospital was able to charge a, a lot of money for all that services. Then we realized, wow inpatient care is really expensive and we changed the way that we are reimbursed for inpatient care and suddenly everybody started innovating and finding ways to bring it back out into the outpatient setting. So we have it there and back again. All right. So let's talk a little bit about levels of care. Um, so you off, I, I use the phrase primary care all the time, right? Primary care is outpatient care. It's focused on wellness. Um, it is longitudinal in the sense that you have a relationship with your primary care provider. So you have a family medicine doctor. You should be seeing them, you know, at least once a year for an annual physical. is so check your cholesterol, see if you're eating healthy, you know, check your blood pressure, kind of do that sort of thing. And they're also the person you, your first line of defense. If you get sick, you know, you, you should be going to see them, right? And so you have this longitudinal relationship where the person really kind of has a good handle on your health status and knows your health history. And these people, an important role that they play is there like the quarterback of the health, your health team, right? They have the bigger picture of, of what's going on with you. You know, so if you have a knee injury that you'll, that primary care provider will send you to see a knee specialist. And if you're having a heart issue, the, the primary care provider will send you to see the cardiologist. The cardiologist doesn't understand your knee problem and the knee and the, and the orthopod doesn't, doesn't care about your heart, heart problem. Um, so, the primary care doctor is that person that kind of brings it all together and consults a lot of times consults with the specialist to make sure that this that and that the primary care provider understands the overall picture and that the specialist understands the other things that are going on in your life and in your health status so that so that they appropriately treat you. Secondary care is an increase in acuity, right? So it's, it's more complex. Um, now the assumption is it's occasional, um, meaning it's not going to be all the time. Uh, it is, it is going to be most likely episodic. Um, you're going to see a lot more, this is where your specialists are going to come in. So this is something that, you know, your primary care provider is a really smart man or woman, most likely, but they are a mile wide and an inch deep, right? They have a, a, a working knowledge of orthopedics, but they also have a working knowledge of cardiology, of dermatology, and nephrology, and so on, but they're not themselves those specialists. And so when the, so secondary care is you're typically referred to it by your primary care provider. Uh, and this is where specialists begin to work. And you might have that care in an outpatient setting, remember we've we've talked about it, or an inpatient setting, depend on depending on the level of acuity. But it's probably going to be a specialist who's who's rendering all this. Tertiary care is your complex um, and uncommon care, and it's almost always some sort of inpatient care. So trauma, right? If you're in a major car accident uh, and you need life saving care, that's a that's tertiary care. Most hospitals are not trauma certified. Um, and so this is going to be your higher level of care. Neonatal intensive care. If you have a baby who's born prematurely and maybe is having trouble breathing on their own, that's an example that your baby would be sent to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, uh, where they provide a very high level of care. That's a tertiary level of care. So you're not going to have... A NICU at a small hospital. You know, you're going to have a baby who's uh, born with that kind of need. They're going to be evacuated to, you know, a Boston children's or something like that. And then quaternary care is a relatively new term. um, and it implies, high the the highest level of acuity the highest level of complexity definitely going to be inpatient and it's things you know examples include things like organ transplants or some of those experimental treatments that we were talking about like like implanting you know chips into your brain that kind of thing right so it's experimental uh, very very high level Okay. So let's talk a little more about uh, primary care, right? It's holistic. It's basic care. It's right. It's focused primarily on wellness. It's on keeping you healthy. It is ideally the point of entry for you to, to for you, the patient into the healthcare system. <clears throat> you don't want to be going, you're like, oh, my knee hurts. I'm going to go to an orthopedic surgeon. You know what? Maybe you don't really need that care, Uh uh, uh you know, you might you know take two motrin for for two weeks and you know a day and maybe that pain will go away and your primary care provider can probably give you a better sense of what that is because going to an orthopedic surgeon is really expensive no matter what you're going for um so they perform an important role called gatekeeping which basically said you know you come in to see your and this is especially prevalent under managed care and supply side rationing Right. Or rationing. This is where the the primary care provider acts as a person to who kind of controls whether you go to see higher uh, levels of care or not. So, you know, depending on and we'll talk more about this in Chapter nine. So coming soon, we'll talk a lot more about managed care and how it works. But basically, the primary care provider um, you know, decides which is the right specialist for you to go see maybe it's an orthopedic surgeon maybe it's somebody else right then they coordinate the care which i was talking about earlier you know your orthopedic surgeon might not know what's going on with your dermatology you know derm- dermatological conditions might not know about cardiology so on so the primary care provider again is that holistic has an overall understanding of what's going on with you um and and treats you as a whole person whereas your specialists tend to be focused on a particular organ or function, right? So a a cardiologist basically cares about hearts, right? An ophthalmologist basically cares about eyes, but your primary care provider cares about your whole person. Who who provides this? Physicians, family medicine doctors, internal medicine doctors, pediatricians, and then your mid-levels, family nurse practitioners and physician assistants or PAs. Uh, My primary care provider for the last five, six years has been a family nurse practitioner. That's great for me. I am, you know, knock on wood. I am pretty healthy uh, as a 53-year-old guy. Uh, Probably could lose a few pounds, maybe eat a little healthier, but I'm doing pretty well. I don't have any major chronic issues. So I don't need to see a higher level, you know, internal medicine doc, family medicine. A family nurse practitioner is fine for me. So we talked a little about ambulatory surgery centers, relatively new uh, innovation. Again, focused on outpatient surgery. They don't have beds, uh, in the sense that there's going to be a, some that you're going to spend the night there and have nurses. If you need to be admitted to a hospital, you have to be evacuated from the ASC to a hospital. So it's done outside the hospital st- structure, which lowers costs because because you're there. The costs of running the wards, of providing all the other kinds of care that the hospital provides, isn't there? Right, ambulatory surgery centers um, uh, are just doing this high, these high-profit outpatient services, and they can be owned by physicians, which creates additional profit and control incentives for the physicians themselves. And you can see all different sorts of specialties doing it. I have a uh, an otolaryngologist who's a, a colleague of mine. Um, ENT doctor is is the shorthand for that. She uh, and her partners own a, an ambulatory surgery center down in, in Exeter. Ophthalmology, orthopedics all use, make extensive use of ambulatory surgery centers. Now an interesting evolution is hospice. This is a really, this is not a particular kind of care. So, uh, at some point, you will be exposed to hospice care if you haven't already seen it. So it's a status of care, not a particular kind of treatment. And uh, the way you enter hospice is a physician de- has to determine that you have a diagnosis that likely co- will you will have less than six months to live. When you enter hospice, what you are saying is, I am accepting that I am likely going to die in the near future. and I no longer want you to try to cure me. I just want you to make me comfortable in my last days. So the difference, the the shift is from curative, where we're trying to actually cure you to palliative. So palliative just means we're trying to control your pain and make you comfortable. So, for example, if you are a cancer patient and the and the and the oncologist says, we've done everything we can. And at this point, there's nothing else we can do. We're going to stop, you know, if you agree to go into hospice, we're going to stop giving you chemotherapy and we're going to focus on controlling your pain and making you comfortable. So palliative care really focuses on a quality of life. Uh, It focuses on pain management and and, then spiritual preparation for death, right? So, and this doesn't have to necessarily be religious in nature. It is, you know, just, Helping people come to terms with their inevitable uh, end. And this is the interesting thing. It can be delivered in any setting. So it isn't necessarily at home. It isn't necessarily in a nursing home. It isn't necessarily in a hospital. I have you watching a video uh, of a hospice home, um, which is you know kind of a nursing facility that is focused on providing people a comfortable space to, to, to live out their last days. Um, so, but it, you know, so you can get this care at home using home health uh, or you can have it in a nursing home where the nursing home is, 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 is then given special reimbursements to bring in uh, providers like social workers or other, other people to kind of spend time with you to help, you know, help you deal with the psychological and spiritual elements. So we talked a little bit about home health. Probably the most exciting thing that's happening right now is home health, right? Back to the back to the home, right? Health, home almost all healthcare was delivered in the home back in the day, right, through the 1850s, right? Until we started to have medical technology that actually worked. Then we shifted into the hospital. And now we're seeing that shift back out to the home again. And home health is really remarkable. The stuff that they can do today in the home is just stunning relative to what it once was. So the future is the past, as I like to say. So healthcare is going to go to the home. Hospitals are actually dangerous places. We have this phrase, iatrogenic disease. This is this is harm done by the healthcare system. So it's everything from accidental wrong site surgeries this happens where they you know you go in to have your left foot amputated and they accidentally um uh amputate your right foot right uh, or your left testicle is going to be removed and they actually actually and because it's cancerous and they accidentally remove your right testicle and then you wind up having to have the other one removed too um, that's iatrogenic disease it also includes hospitals because they have really sick people they tend to bring in some of the nastiest bugs, and those bugs are hard to kill sometimes. And so you can wind up picking up uh, a a really nasty infection in a hospital because the superbugs ha- are have been able to survive in the hospital despite the best efforts of the hospital to to clean and and create an, uh, a, a uh, cr- create a, a germ free environment. So so. They're, it's hospitals are a dangerous place. They're also expensive, right? It's really expensive to maintain that physical infrastructure. And what we can see are technological advances are increasing what's possibly be done at home. Communications, of course, you know the the internet has just changed everything in my lifetime including making it much easier to monitor patients at home. And then medical equipment is shrinking, getting smaller and smaller, such that something that once upon a time wouldn't have been mobile is now easily mobile and brought into the home. Plus we're getting stuff that like, like, again, going back to like the iWatch, right. Which is technology that used to would have only been possible in a doctor's office. Now you can just wear on your wrist casually as just like part of your normal day to day. Right. Um, and then you get a lot of different providers who specialize in providing home health, um, and we see you know all these different kinds going in. And the reimbursement trends are supporting home health, uh, and especially post-COVID, telemedicine is getting better reimbursement. So that's encouraging people, encouraging entrepreneurial medical providers to think about new and different things that they can do in the home, including- the latest kind of really crazy innovation in the last seven or eight years called hospital at home. Now this is um, a, a a thing that's happening. You're going to see this. Mass General Brigham is doing it. Um, uh, Beth Israel Leahy is doing it up here. There are a lot of uh, you know it's being run by large medical centers, and basically what it is is you're sick enough that you would normally be admitted into the hospital. Um, but you're stable enough that you're not likely to, you know, to, to, to have them, um, uh, to decompensate and to need to be, uh, need to get emergency care. So what they do is, is they set up high levels of monitoring. They send a lot of equipment there. They ensure that there are home health support. So, so clinicians are coming into your home to, to check you, um, and and you have continuous monitoring as a result of uh, as a result of Im, Im evolving technology. This is the way of the future. Uh, so it's likely you're going to see this. Someone in, that you care about in, in in the next ten years, you're going to hear about it. You're going to see it. You know, hopefully you won't have to have it done to you, but probably someone you care about will. So that's exciting, right? Even more stuff coming out of the hospital. And the last bit I just want to talk about is complementary medicine, complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM, uh, shorthand for CAM. This is you know sort of it's it it can be outpatient or inpatient, but it, it kind of just get we're we're wedging it in here to talk about because it's mostly done in an outpatient setting. Um. Medicine, remember, from the get-go, medicine is an applied science. We may not understand why things work, but we look for things that work, and we just keep doing the things that work, and we stop doing the things that don't work, right? And sometimes we don't really understand why they work. And so um, you know, complementary medicine and alternative medicine often refer to um, uh, to traditional medicines of different cultures. Uh, that, you know, so for example, acupuncture is a Eastern uh, uh, kind of medicine. We don't really know why it works. Sometimes it works. It works well in in particular for pain management, uh, but it can be used for other things. We've found meditation has real uh, impacts, not only on mental health, but physical health as well. Because stress is a major source of illness, and if we can control our stress, we can reduce the amount of, of other kinds of illness. Exercise and diet have are, in reality, two of the best preventive medicines. And so if we can address you know, nutritional needs um, through, through various, various uh, uh, approaches, that's complementary medicine. So complementary, so the difference between complementary medicine and alternative medicine is complementary medicine is meant to be done alongside of normal, you know, normal, It's probably a bad word, uh, uh, mainstream approaches to medicine. So we're going to do, you're going to go to your doctor, if you've got cancer, you're going to get a, a, a chemotherapy treatment from your from your oncologist, but you might also get acupuncture or massage to help with your cycle psycho, the psychological effects uh, and the pain management. Right. So that's that's how complementary works. Alternative medicine as the name suggests, is an alternative to mainstream medicines. We're going to do something else instead. So we're going to do, say, acupuncture instead of using opioids. So that's that's an example of alternative medicine. And there are other, you know, um, when I was a kid, if we talked about about meditation, we'd all be like, woo, 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 you know, like woo, woo stuff, like people are just kind of being kind of goofy. But today we, we realize that this is a real thing. Uh, and has real impact. All right. So in summary, the outpatient, outpatient care, historically, almost all care was outpatient. Hospitals were place of last resort. Come the late 19th century, the late 1800s into the 20th century, we start to have technology that actually works. Medicine wasn't all that useful, probably harmful. Come the 1850s, we start to understand things like germ theory. We start to, we we find, uh, we learn about radiology, all these things that become very expensive technologies. They're expensive. So they, the best way to deal with that is to put it in one central place where the physicians share it. Then we realize uh, we find way profitable ways to take it back out into the outpatient setting. And what we, we see is an improvement in, both cost and quality, and, it was, and typically as a result, easier to access. So we'll continue to talk about inpatient care next time. And these, these two chapters really kind of blend together.